Verse 1 of chapter 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and they're, you know, at Mount Sinai at this time. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance of the second time, the camp that lies on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assemblies be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound advance. The sons of Aaron and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also on the day of your gladness, in your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offering, over the sacrifice of your peace offering, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So tonight we begin with the two silver trumpets and how they use the trumpets to mobilize the people. That these trumpets were used for practical things, worship, time to move, time to get going, time to organize. They need to understand the pitch of the trumpets and what they're about. One, one blast, it's just the leaders, just the generals of 600,000 standing military, 603,000, just the generals show up. Double, double trumpet, then there's more to it, and everybody comes and things go on. What does get my attention is verse 9 in these trumpets, because these trumpets were meant to guide them in their human experience. Let me say that again. These trumpets were meant to guide them collectively as the people of God in their human experiences. And the two things that, are, that really get my attention in verse 9 is the time of war and the time of gladness. Did you catch that when we read this? There's a trumpet to blow for the time of war. And there's a trumpet to blow for the time of gladness. This is why I've said many times when we say this, you should dance at weddings because they're happy days and happy nights. When there's opportunities to rejoice and be glad, you should. Don't be afraid to express joy and thanksgiving and happiness on the day of happiness. Because older people here and younger people know just as well, there's plenty of days of sorrow. There's plenty of days where you cannot rejoice and be glad. There are days of heartache. There are days of great conflict. And that's the way life works. In fact, it was God himself who gave us Ecclesiastes chapter 3 through Solomon, his great servant, when he said there's a time and purpose for everything under heaven. And there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. And there's a time to embrace and refrain from embracing there's a time of love, and there's a time of hate. And there's a time to rejoice, and there's a time to mourn. And there's a time of war, and there's a time of peace. And he makes all things perfect in his time, and he has put eternity in our hearts. Everyone under 20 in this crowd was going to go on a 40-year march through the desert. And they were going to hear these trumpets. And they're going to watch the generation before them step into eternity because of their unbelief be struck down by the Lord. They're going to watch very difficult things. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be attacked by Edomites, Moabites, Amorites. They're going to be attacked as they're just trying to enter into what God has for them. They are going to be attacked while they're obeying God and his call 
on their life. They are going to be attacked when they're living the human experience of falling in love and getting married in the wilderness, of having children in the wilderness. They're going to have gladness on some days in their wilderness wandering. And then they're going to have great anxiety on other days when they have to fight Og and Sihon on the east side. When they're denied passage through Edom. And no matter how much you would want to tell the people that are going through Edom, we're not going to take what you got. God's got something for us. We're just passing through. You can't reason with the people of Edom. And God said to them, don't worry about the Edomites. They'll be your enemies forever because they did not help you on your journey. Two trumpets. Different sounds. It's life. You know, it says in the Proverbs that when you dance in a sorrowful day, it's totally out of place. It's like being off cadence with music. And of course, tonight we find ourselves in a very serious time. Very serious time. Surely in our lifetime, we've never seen a time as serious as even this very day in our country. We are in a war right now, a culture war. It's a spiritual war. We've been praying We are praying. We need to continue to pray. For it was at the Red Sea a year before when God said to Moses, stand back and see the salvation of your God. And while we don't know what the truth is, and we know there are many liars deceiving many, the father of lies is the devil himself, and ultimately he is the one behind lies. There is nothing hidden that won't be revealed. So in our serious day, when it is a trumpet, Sounding in our land, it's not one for a wedding. And I think we all know that. But our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for turning down strongholds. We must pray. We must fill our minds with the promises of God and the scriptures of God. And we must not let evil people move us from a firm foundation through faith in the living God. Any more so than they could have or should have, nor should we. Our God is a rock. There is no God but our God. And there is no rock but our God, the rock. Jesus Christ is the final authority over everything and everybody. And Jesus Christ is the one who opens the books in Revelation chapter 20 and pronounces judgment on all evil where all things are naked and bare for every idle word, for every motive of the heart to whom we must all give an account. And for us, through faith in Jesus Christ, being under the blood of the Lamb, we're in the Lamb's book of life, where we're justified for all eternity through faith in Him and who He is and what He's done. And our works will be tested. Our works will be tested. They'll be tested to determine what rewards and what roles and purposes we have in the new kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. It is a difficult day, and I don't particularly like the sound of the trumpet I'm hearing, but nonetheless, there are enemies of the gospel. There always has been, there always will be, and we fight our battles on our knees, and we encourage and build up one another, and having done all, stand, and we commit our ways to the Lord, and we just want to be a faithful church congregation that believes in the promises of God, that loves Jesus, loves our neighbor, loves our enemies, is spirit-filled and forgiving to the end. That's who we want to be. But we want to move heaven and earth. 
Let's proclaim his power over darkness and believe that power over darkness. And know this for the faithful, the only trumpet we hear in eternity is the other one. That's the only one we'll hear in eternity. We might have to hear the pitch. You know, I'm reading a book on Catherine the Great. She was the Prussian princess that married the grandson of Peter the Great in about 1750 in Russia. She's one of the greatest women leaders in human history. But uh, she had to marry Peter, and he was just the worst. But he played a violin horribly. And in her memoir, she talks for year after year, he'd play that violin, and she was basically a prisoner for years while Elizabeth, the daughter of Peter the Great, was queen at that time in Russia. And she said it was the most torturous thing known to humanity is to hear the pitch of that violin every day from Peter, her husband who never showed her affection or intimacy ever in a forced, arranged, monarch type of marriage. I feel like I'm hearing that violin. I'm hearing a pitch in a frequency I don't like. But nonetheless, the ultimate trumpet we're all going to hear the trump of the Lord. It's coming. I really, it's all I can do not just to get up and go, everyone just go, he's coming. Because he is. And I believe that with every cell in my body. And I think you do too. I mean, I know Ch- Pastor Chuck felt like it was the end game in Yom Kippur War 73 and stuff like that. But man, I really, really feel like we're looking at it right now. I just, I can see it all. Yet, the Lord's not done until he's done. So we're one day at a time, casting all of our cares upon him, for he cares for us. And be anxious for nothing, but all things through prayer and supplication, that our request be known to God. Maybe you're having a hard time sleeping at night. Or when you wake up, I can't fall back to sleep. So I'm just praying and meditating on scripture and praying for our country. That's what I'm doing. Like my whole life right now is so focused on praying and meditating on scripture and just steady lads, steady and just holding it together in the strength of the Lord. We can all do that because God is on the throne and he's got the final say. Now we pick it up in verse 11. So now they're going to move. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up. So they had that uh, remember they had this, this second chance Passover week a month later? This would be right after that. We studied that on Saturday. That the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony, and the children of Israel set out of their wilderness, out of the wilderness, from the wilderness of the Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies, and over the army was Nashon, the son of Amenabad. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathaniel, the son of Zur. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out carrying the tabernacle. Remember, they're the ones that have the carts because they do all the heavy lifting. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out according to their armies. Over their army was Eliezer, the son of Shadur, over the army of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shemuliel, the son of Zerushaddai, 
and over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Duel. Then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. The tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival. So let's pause here just for a second contextually. Remember, the east would roll first. So Judah was the first to break camp. We talked about this. Someone has to go first. So Judah and the three tribes break camp, and they roll out. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people in order, a huge military. And then once the first three of the 12 move from the east, then the Morites and the Gershonites, they break down all the heavy stuff. So they've got all the coverings for the tabernacle and all that. Then they've got all the boards, the bronze altar, all that stuff. Well, the other stuff, the, the, the gate, the fence that goes around the outside, and it's, it's tonnage of weight. It's, it's, it's tons of, it, the weight is literally tonnage, and they've got the cart. So they, they load up all that stuff, and they go. So in the order of the parade, it's the first three tribes, and these guys are coming because they've got the carts, and they've got all the heavy stuff. Well, then these next three tribes roll out after them. That's half the tribes are now on the move, and two-thirds of the Levite tribes the Levite tribe are on the move, but now the Kohathites move. So halfway through this, they grab those gold poles for the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, the showbread, the lampstand, and then they roll out. So that's their order. So now they're, they're separate. And then we get the parenthetical thought. It goes that way because then when they stop, okay, here comes the three tribes. They set up to the east. Then the tabernacle crew, the Gershonites and Marites with their carts and everything. Hey, you remember three Planks three, four, five, and six, those are yours for the next 20 years. Get your planks, set them up. And they put everything in order. It would all be set. And then here comes the other three tribes. They come and they set their positions from the south. And now half the tribes are in place. The tabernacle set up. And here come the Kohathites with the holy things of the Lord that they're carrying on their shoulders. Order, design. So I want you to picture that because this is how they moved in the wilderness for 39 years after this time. Verse 22, and the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set out according to their armies. Over their armies was Eliashim, the, the son of Ahumahud. Over the army of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Padassar. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abaddon, the son of Gidoni. Then the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, they're the rear guard of all the camps. They set out according to their armies. Over their army was Ahizir, the son of Amashadai, over the army of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pegiel, the son of Akron, and over the army of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. Thus was the order of march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. Now they're really doing it. It's not a walkthrough anymore. They're really, they're doing it. Now Moses said to Hobad, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, so this is his brother-in-law, we are setting out to the place which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. So Moses said, please, do not leave in as much as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness. You can be our eyes, and it shall be, if you go with us, indeed, it shall be that whatever good the Lord would do to us, the same we will do for you. And that's all we know of that. We don't know any more of that, but that's a wonderful promise. Verse 33, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey for three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day and when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the Ark set out the, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Oh my God, that's pretty cool, huh? They're moving out. You know, every step forward with the Lord is a spiritual battle. 
you know, when you first give your life to Christ, you figure this out slowly but surely, and you just realize, man, there's no way around it. You're either going to go forward with the Lord, and it's going to be a spiritual battle, everything. Your integrity, your character, your conduct, your attitudes, your actions, your words. It's going to be a battle to have your life subject to the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need a battle for your marriages and your children and your grandchildren. Remember we talked about this recently where Paul said at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. It's a spiritual battle. So you know what? It's pretty biblical for us to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, <laughs> rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Because every day is a spiritual battle. And it's not so much the people, but it's people who are led by the devil opposing the kingdom of God in your life, advancing through your life. I used to think, why do the weirdest things always happen to us? Well, they happen to anyone who's obeying the Lord going forward. Through many afflictions, we must inherit the kingdom of God. And through many tribulations, the church is established. Jesus said, don't be surprised the world hates you. They hate me. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And thus he has. Because this Narnia is not our home. Our home is the new Narnia, to quote C.S. Lewis. This, this is the first earth. We're part of the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth, where there's no more tears and no more sorrow. Twice in this passage, it's the enemies. Throughout the New Testament, there's so many passages about enemies coming against the church, women of power driving the apostles out of the city, people of prominence who make money from evil, idolatrous practices, opposing the apostles, falsely accusing them, imprisoning them, seeing them beaten and driven out of the city. There is nothing new under the sun. But you know, we can lay down at night and say, return our Lord to the many thousands of Israel. David in the psalm says, you, you just, I can cry out to you all night. You can give me good sleep. I trust in you when I lay down and I praise your name when I wake up. That's what he said in those psalms. It is noteworthy too, it says they went out for the first time in verse 13. They were so prepared they had been so instructed, drilled, if you were, if you will, to go out. And may I say to us, this is a thought I've had on my mind this year. What is the bigger picture of 2020? What really is the Lord doing in the bigger picture? Where is this really all going? Is God preparing us, the church of Jesus Christ, that believes in the blood. We sang about it tonight. Thank you, Chris. That we believe in the exclusivity of the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ for atonement. That you must be born again to be saved. We believe in the whole counsel of God. Is he preparing for his church for greater challenges and greater fruit or just a strong finish for the end game? Is it possible this year it's all a, a, a fire drill for much more extreme things that could be coming our way? That thought has crossed my mind. I don't like government telling me I can't be in the church building. I don't like government telling me I can't sing in the church. I don't like government telling me I can't celebrate Thanksgiving with my family in my house. That's pretty invasive, especially in the name of the flu, 0.001%. I don't like that. But is there something more coming? If we can't 
run with the foot soldiers. What do we do when the horsemen come? There's a first time for everything, and we have seen the first time, haven't we? Who could have ever thought this year would be like this? If you told me at the beginning of the year, the governor's going to say you can't sing in the church, you can't meet in the church, and you can't get together for Thanksgiving, and you can't wear an outfit on Halloween or something, I would be like, what universe are you coming from? How could he ever have that much power contrary to the constitutional laws of our federal government and state government? There's a limit to what he can do with an emergency. It's 60 days, right? How could he ever have that much power? Well, lawyers in court, Pastor Chuck told me it's really important in life after Jesus. Good lawyers. We can get an abortion and we can go gambling in Nevada, but we can't go to church. That has nothing to do with the flu, 0.001% fatality. Remember, Sam comes from a communist country. You should hear his stories about growing up. I spoke with his dad who came across the Danabi with communist Romanian soldiers shooting at him, fleeing communism from Romania to come to this country. I talked to his father for an hour. He risked everything with the hope that when he got to Yugoslavia under Tito, he would be in prison for a, a month and have the one in 20 odds to be able to still immigrate to the United States. And he won the lottery and it worked that way. He remembers him coming to school and examining his fingernails. He remembers they could have meat once a year and those commies showed up and took their meat and left them the poisonous meat and he had worms from it. We need to be really careful what we ask for, which brings us to the next chapter. Chapter 11, now when the people complained and it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. Man, they just got rolling. It's the first time they're rolling out and right away they're complaining. I don't want to be that person. I don't want you to be that person. For the Lord hurt and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. When Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabarah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our whole bean is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Wow. It is so not good when you curse manna. It's just, it's so not good. Manna is like most special, it's, it's angel's food. That's what it says in the Psalms. I'm going through the Psalms right now, about 10 a day right now. And I just read the Psalm where it says, he gave them manna, angel's food. There's never been food like manna, ever. It came from heaven. It was physical and spiritual, and it spoke of Jesus, the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And Jesus said, take eat of me. He who does not eat of my flesh is not worthy to be my disciple. Everyone's like, whoa, that's just really too much for me. And they walk away, and he says to Peter, you're going to leave too? And he goes, where are we going to go? You got the words of life. Isn't that one of our favorite verses now? Where are we going to go? You got the words of life. We're all in with Jesus like Sam was praying. We're in the boat. Where are we going to go? Here's the, Jesus' boat is the boat that floats. But they murmured and they complained. I do not want to murmur and complain. I want to have conviction and character. I want to speak truth. And I don't want to cower down. I want to be courageous. But I definitely don't want to murmur and complain. 
against the Lord? No. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we bought nothing in this world, and it certainly will take nothing out. And why do we want to take Why would we want to take anything out? I can think about all of our stuff in the shed from being married for 33 years, all the stuff I can't get rid of. I'm just like, you know what? When I'm gone, the kids can figure it out, which is kind of what every generation does, right? That's kind of what they do, right? You got to go through your parents' stuff. It's like, can't take it with you. They complained. Who complained the most? Those on the outskirts. There's people that are on the outskirts with the church. They're on the outskirts. They're always on the outskirts. They got another name for them, too, the mixed multitude. You know it's mixed multitude? Because they're carnal. They're not consecrated. They're not set apart. There's a lot of mixed multitude that go to church in America, and I don't want to be one of them, nor do you. Mixed multitude's carnal. Earthly. You know, the, the books that warn about false prophets in the New Testament all refer to them as being carnal. The warnings from Paul to the Corinthians about false apostles who disguise themselves as angels of lights with lying signs and wonders. We're told the Antichrist will deceive the world with the most powerful lying signs and wonders that have ever happened. We're told in the book of Jude, we're warned about false prophets who are they're carnal. You can identify them because their teachings are carnal. They appeal to carnal things, self-gratifying things not self-sacrificing things. The cross is self-sacrificing. The soft gospel of the West is self-gratifying. These guys are a type of that. These people. There's a lot of people that want to go to church and feel good about themselves. They have no interest in being disciples of Jesus Christ. They have no interest in picking up their cross and following Christ. All they want to do is live in sin, justify it, and feel good about themselves when they wake up in the morning because they have to live with their conscience. I feel sorry for him. Jesus said, many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and do that? And he's like, I don't even know you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. That's the mixed multitude. Beware of the mixed multitude. Beware of those in our day right now who claim to be leaders for Christ and shepherds of Christ who are evil and approve evil and condone evil. Beware of them, for they have doctrines that are tickling to people's ears. And they pick causes that the masses agree with, but if they pick any cause that the masses don't agree with, then they would, they would never pick that cause. It's easy to be bold when people are burning stuff down and you're on the side of people burning stuff down. It's a lot harder to be bold when you're a teenager from Kentucky and you're standing for life for the unborn at the Lincoln Memorial and guys in your face chanting songs against you and provoking you. And then you're assailed and slandered by the entire media. It's a lot harder to stand for the unborn than it is for some lives matter. All lives matter. Black lives matter. White lives matter. Blue lives matter. The president lives matter. The president who doesn't, the president elect who's not elected, his life matters. Jesus died for all lives. I'm sick of this nonsense, but I'm so sick of the mixed multitude. Not because the people in the world, they're not the mixed multitude. If you're in the world and that's the way you are, that's, if you choose to take, 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 burn, take, blame, 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 victim, 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 that's your business. But if you confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a taker and you pick and choose who gets to live and who doesn't get to live, and somehow because you're for the unborn that makes you against black single women, and somehow because you're white, you're a racist. 
That's racism. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I long for the day when you judge a man by the content of his character, not the color of his skin. That's true civil rights. You know, I had one key hero when I was a pro surfer. You know who he was? Martin Luther King Jr. So you know how hard it is for me to sit back this year and have people call me racist because my skin is white? Racism is divisive. Christ's blood is unifying. God knows our heart. And we need to love, and I need to love, and I need to forgive. But enough is enough. If you think the mixed multitude years now, let me tell you, the end game is a massive mixed multitude. For Mystery Babylon, the harlot, is the ultimate mixed multitude. I stand under Pastor Chuck's teachings for years. And there's one thing he talked about in teaching Revelation is the Babylonian church, the apostate church that compromises the blood of Jesus Christ, the necessity of the cross, and goes along with this world religion that just is religion of the mixed multitude. They're carnal. And I'm capable of being carnal. And my flesh wants to be carnal. You know, it'd be really easy to say, let's just be lustful. Let's just be politically correct. Let's just take things from everybody. Let's just let the unborn go undefended, the most defenseless human beings on the planet. Let's just, let's just ensure you can be married because it's the end game. You know, it's tempting to do that. Let's just let the government take care of us. Remember when I went to this Russia, the former Soviet Union last year, I asked every single person over 50 what life was like under the communist. And I asked them what it was like. And I've told you this before, but I'll tell you again. They told me this, to a T, we're all equal, but we're all equally miserable. We all had equally no chance for upward movement, and we all equally could not practice our faith. God help us and protect us from the mixed multitude in the church. Because you see the church divided right now? Because someone said to me, can't the church just get along and be unified? How can you be unified with the mixed multitude? They get torched on the outside of the camp. How can I be unified? How can I be unified with a pastor who thinks it's okay to kill the most defenseless human beings on the planet. How can I be unified with that person? I didn't cause division with them. They caused division. Christ is not divided. And Christ is not a murderer. And just because I'm for the unborn doesn't mean I'm not compassionate for the single mom. These people that are carnal, they're dividing the church. And they're going to kowtow to the end to evil government powers. That's what's going to happen. This mixed multitude is a great warning to all of us. And I, I'm not mad. I'm passionate. So make sure you understand that. And I'm probably expressing what a lot of you have thought. And as a shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ and a Calvary Chapel pastor for almost 33 years, this is a hard time to watch. Not so much society and what looks like the erosion of the United States of America and our constitutional rights and the things my dad fought for, and my grandfather fought for, and my great-grandfather fought for, and my great-great-grandfather fought for at Gettysburg, day two, combat veteran, civil war for the North. What this is is not the country they fought for, what these people are doing. My great-great-grandfather, Truesdale, was a teenager and wounded in combat in the civil war 
fighting for the North. I have the letter he wrote home to his family when he was recovering for an entire year at Bethesda Naval Hospital in D.C. It was in my dad's safe deposit box. You know, the church was divided before the Civil War, too. Blood guilt will always divide the church. Remember the Gettysburg Address? Lincoln said, woes must come, but woe to those to whom they come. And this is my thought. Have all the woes of all the injustice of this nation fallen upon this generation? That has crossed my mind. All the woes, all the injustices, racial injustices, unborn injustices, have they all fall upon us? Well, if they have, then be the true church and learn how to walk with the foot soldiers so you can run with the horsemen. Because God appointed us to be alive at this time. And whatever we're going to see, we're alive at this time to see it. And Jesus is the same yesterday and forever. And he does not bless the mixed multitude. He blesses the gospel and the whole counsel of his word and those who bow the knee and confess him as Lord. And I'd like to think that's who I am. I'd like to think that's who we are. We're all deeply concerned. The children have come to bear and who is able to deliver. We will find out. Verse 7, now the manna was like the corridor seed and its color like the color of bedlam. The people went about and gathered it and they ground it on millstone or beat it in the mortar or cooked it in pans and made cakes of it and its taste was like the taste of pastry with oil and when the dew fell on the camp in the night and the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused and Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight and you've made me lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I going to get the meat to give all these people? For they weep over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If if I've not found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. This is very interesting. Because Moses is absolutely flustered beyond measure with the people and the circumstances, like how two million people want meat, and they're not satisfied with the manna. But what gets my attention here is that he said, the last thing he said, do not let me see my wretchedness. Isn't it interesting when people afflict you wrongly or frustrate you, that if you're really dialed in, you'll see your own wretchedness? Yeah. Like when God gives you someone that just grates you wrong or agitates you wrong or someone's riding you at work unjustly or they're just people you can never satisfy in your family or whatever and they just frustrate you to the point of exasperation. You know, if you really run the course of what your superiors are doing to you or your subordinates or whatever, you might actually look in the mirror and say, man, I am a wretched man. I'm a wretched woman. I was just sharing with Troy about some of the stuff I went with the U.S. Olympic Committee when I was the head coach of the U.S. Olympic surf team. And I went through all this super gnarly stuff and I was so frustrated with everything, all the, no, but just a lot of really frustrating stuff with parents coming against me as a coach, coming against me for my faith, having to sign documents that I wouldn't pray with people or share my faith and all these things. But in the midst of it, I got to tell you, I felt like Moses, like my wretchedness. And that's not a bad thing. If you and I have experiences with frustration with people and it reveals our wretchedness, 
and it exasperates us, that's not a bad thing, right? Because if we can recognize our wretchedness through frustrations that people have put us through, then that's something that we can recognize and repent of and, be, and grow from it. October, November, December, two years ago, was the most painful time in the last 30 years of my life, emotionally. It hurt so much to go what I went through with the USOC and USA Surfing. It hurt so much. But in the end, the more I poured out my heart to the Lord, the more I expressed my frustrations over what was going on, the more I saw my own wretchedness, and I determined I didn't want that to carry on with me as I went forward in 2019. And I certainly don't want it lingering in 2020 with 2021 around the corner. So I just, that application stands out to me where Moses says, you know, I can't do this, it's too much, and I'm just a wretched man. Did you get that? Like, this is too much. Why are you? And he's like, and I'm a wretched man. His inability also revealed to him his, his inability with the Lord. His inability to lead the people practically was beyond him, and in that he recognized his own wretchedness as a human being, that he just can't do this. And maybe there's a lot of people this year recognizing that we're wretched. I hope so, because that's the beginning of getting things right. Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, gather me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know by the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there and I will take the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them and they will bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat for it is well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat and you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor 10 days, nor 20 days, but for the whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did he ever come up? Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? And Moses said, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for the whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I shall say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, though they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Elad, the name of the other was Medad, and the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out of the tabernacle. So yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Edad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of the choice men, answered said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that the Lord's people were prophets, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, and he and the elders of Israel. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubits above the surface of the ground, and the people stayed up all day, all night, all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered had at least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between the teeth, 
before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hataba, because there they buried the people who yielded to craving. From Kirboth Hatava, the people moved to Hezroth and camped at Hezroth. So here it is, the beginning of these chastenings, the beginning of these judgments from God upon the people. And we're told in Corinthians that these things are written for our admonition. We've got to always remember that when we're looking at the wilderness wandering. What they went through, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, that these things were written for the church's admonition. Now, we know all Scripture is profitable, but with that New Testament interpretation, looking back on these events, we're like, okay, this is written for me, for you, for all believers to learn from. And again, it's the mixed multitude and their cravings, their intense cravings and cursings against the Lord. So God gave Moses the people who needed to help him, those leaders, and he poured out his spirit upon them. We had a whole study recently where we talked about how God gave the Levites to help Aaron and the priests. So we talked about how good, valuable friendships are and how necessary they are in life. And we've covered that in application. So really our closing thought on all this is that it literally, God said it's going to come out their nose. It's just going to, it's going to consume them. And isn't that what sin is like? That it just, it has a passing pleasure, but then in the end, it destroys it really is a fulfillment of that passage. It says there's a way that seems right for a man, but the end thereby is death. And there's death. And these guys had death. And God will give us over. And that's what Romans 1 warns us about. If we don't respond, and especially for the church in America, think about this. For the last couple months, more than any other time that I can remember in my experience being a pastor or a Christian in America, pastors ministries that we respect and love like Franklin Graham and others they've been crying out and Graham Lotz all these wonderful men and women who love God we've been crying out for repentance in the church that we'd repent all of us and we've been trying to recognize what's displeasing to the Lord acknowledge it and go forward from it I certainly have and I hope you have too I, I think that's quite clear for all of us that's been our heart and if we are tenderhearted and we receive correction and we're willing to repent when the Lord's correcting us, we'll grow and we'll go forward. That's what we'll do. We'll be like David, like we talked about on Saturday. We'll be under the mercy. There's faith, there's grace. We grow, there's faith, there's grace. We grow and we go forward. And we can say that God will save our lives in spite of failures. Remember, David was a murderer, an adulterer, and all these other things. And yet he had a heart after God because he didn't let those things define him. He, he received correction he repented, he grew, he went forward and moved toward what he was meant to be in the fullness of his life. And it's an amazing story. That's who we want to be. But what happens is if we don't learn from our mistakes, if we don't believe the word, we don't trust in the word, we don't grow, and we harden our heart, because it says in Hebrews, do not harden your heart like they did in the wilderness, then what happens is we're given over. And God says, you want quail? I'll give you quail till it rots in your teeth. I'll give you quail till it's, I'll give you meat till it's coming out your nostrils. Like, that's really scary. This happened. It's a really sobering thought. He's like, I'll let you choke and gag and die and suffocate on your carnal desires. And what is Romans 1? Romans 1 is God saying that he gives people over to their darkened hearts and their depraved minds. That's what it is. We need a purpose in our hearts. 
that contentment with the Lord is what we want. Faithfulness to the Lord is what we want. That his word is a lamp unto our feet and the compass of our life. And we need a purpose now more than ever that we don't need meat coming out of our nose and destroying us. But that, that honey wafer or corridor seed is what we want, the food from heaven. We are being sifted and we are being cleansed and we are being purified and the distinctions are becoming so clear. They're becoming so clear. God is just removing this, this church-going middle ground and he's just splitting it. You're either fully given over this way or you're this way. We want to make sure that we're not given over, but we're this way. Because those are the ones who go into the promised land. Those are the people who enter in to all the good things of the Lord. But you want quail and you're not satisfied with manna, then you'll be given over. They'll come right out your nostrils. God forbid that would ever be the end game of our life. Think about that. Think, think if your life before the Lord was defined that you gagged and choked on carnal things. Isn't it much better to finish the journey that you enjoyed manna every day till the journey was done and you were quite content with it and quite joyful in the Lord with it? There's two ways. Moses said, choose which way. We want to manna for the church, not quail coming out of our nostrils. Not the mixed multitude complaining, but those that are grateful and thankful of a contrite spirit and just so content with the Lord and all that he has as we might have things taken from us bit by bit in this unknown future that we're all looking at. Let God be true, every man a liar, for all of his promises are yes and amen.